Hey, my name is Jason. I'm the producer of It Starts With Attraction. I wanted to let you know that we have a brand new website solely dedicated to working on your pies. Introducing ItStartsWithAttraction.com. You can listen to every episode, learn about the pies, and sign up for our weekly newsletter. Go to ItStartsWithAttraction.com. It starts with attraction, one word. It starts with attraction.com to get signed up today. This week on It Starts With Attraction. Today, we are talking about a hot button issue with many of you and in the world right now. We're talking about narcissism, but we're talking about it from the perspective of the research. I'm super excited to be speaking today with Dr. Virgil Ziegler. Hill. Dr. Ziegler Hill is a professor at Oakland University. He is a social and personality psychologist. His primary interests are in three areas, personality structures and processes, such as narcissism, psychopathy, spitefulness, self-esteem, and interpersonal relationships. He has published more than 250 journal articles, books, book chapters, different things. And he's been actually writing several of the articles that I have been reading during my PhD process. Here's my conversation with Dr. Ziegler Hill. Let's dive in. There's a process to falling in love, and it starts with attraction. Join Kimberly Beam Holmes and her special guests as they discuss how to become the most attractive you can be, physically, intellectually, emotionally, and spiritually, or as we refer to it, working on your pies. We'll teach you how to have better relationships and become more attractive to others, and maybe more importantly, to yourself. It starts with attraction and it starts now. I am really excited to be joined by Dr. Ziegler Hill today. He is a researcher. He is has actually been writing or has written articles and some scholarly scholarly articles that I have been reading for my own dissertation. And so I am super excited to have him join us today to talk about his area of expertise, which has to do in several different areas, but some of which have to do with self-esteem, narcissism, narcissism in certain aspects of the personality. Welcome to the show, Dr. Ziegler Hill. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. For the starting question, I would love to understand what led you to want to research the specific areas that you've spent the past several years diving into. Sure. Uh, so I, I initially was interested in self-esteem. So, th- so that's how I initially kind of came into the area of narcissism. I, I ended up focusing on narcissism really as, as a kind of a side project connected to self-esteem. So w- when I was a when I was a kid, um, I-, I was overweight and um, di- didn't have particularly high self esteem. So as I got older, I thought, you know, when I became a college student, I thought it'd be interesting to learn more about self esteem, where it comes from, how we can improve it. And so when I began graduate school, um, my interest was really in understanding the origins of self esteem, how it can improve. And uh, my doctoral work was on self-concept, which is how individuals kind of organize information about themselves. And I was interested in connecting that self-esteem and thought uh, at the time that I would do one study looking at how uh, certain aspects of self-esteem were connected with narcissism and that that would be it. Um, And became fascinated by narcissism and quickly learned 
that the connections between narcissism and self-esteem are much more complicated than than I initially thought they would be. Can you give a definition of self-esteem and of narcissism? Sure. Um, so self-esteem is they're going to be slightly different definitions, but for the most part, it basically boils down to how people evaluate themselves. So if you think about self-esteem as being on a continuum, it ranges from individuals who really like themselves to individuals who don't like themselves terribly much. Now, where things get a little more complicated is that there are issues of stability of self-esteem as well. But just to kind of keep things simple, it's usually we usually think about it as being this general evaluation of the self. For narcissism, things are even more complicated than self-esteem. Um, but basically what it boils down to is it's a, it's a personality. Uh, it's a set of personality traits, essentially that it involved things like uh, a lack of empathy, feelings of grandiosity, uh, feelings of entitlement, a willingness to exploit others. And uh, when people think about narcissism, they often conflate it with narcissistic personality disorder, which are related things, but there, there are some important differences as well that we'll probably chat about as the conversation goes on. Yeah, I I would love to dive a little deeper into this because one of the things that I have been, especially over the past several years, as the word narcissism has become much more popular, and I'm not quite sure that people use it in the correct way. And a lot of that has been, so my master's degree that, that I went through training in, um, I first started in marriage and family therapy. And so when I was learning about narcissism, it was really more under the aspect of narcissistic personality disorder. And then going back to narcissism in general is probably or is something that all of us have a component of or like a spectrum of, to some extent. So can you explore that a little bit deeper? Like people nowadays are quick to judge and label other people as narcissist. Is that correct? Is that not correct to help us understand that aspect of it? Sure. So narcissistic personality disorder is a it, it's a personality disorder in the DSM-5 that has very specific diagnostic criteria associated with it. And it, it's going to be related to but distinct from narcissism as a, as a personality trait, which is really what I focus on. So the vast majority of my work looks at narcissism as a personality dimension that's relatively normally distributed in, in the population. So the basic idea is that all of us have at least some aspect of narcissism, some some extent of narcissism, with most of us being kind of in the middle in terms of narcissism, some people being really, really high in narcissism, some people being a little bit low. Um, and, and so it, one of the big differences between narcissism as a personality disorder versus it as a, as a personality trait is the disorder assumes that there's some sort of, of cutoff. There's a threshold by which if individuals exceed that criteria, that they now have moved over into the realm of having a disorder, whereas for the personality trait, it think things aren't that clear cut. There is it's a continuum um, within the personality trait, which is what I tend to focus on. What what makes things a, a little more complicated is that there seem to be different types of narcissism, which is part of what leads to the confusion in, first of all, in the empirical literature and also in the way people talk about narcissism and kind of lay language. So my my favorite model of narcissism is one developed by Josh Miller and some of his colleagues a, a few years ago which argues that kind of at the top of this model is general narcissism. 
you can then kind of deconstruct that into grandiose narcissism and vulnerable narcissism, which is sometimes talked about in, in popular culture. But what I think Josh and his colleagues did, which is really important, is they further distinguished, in terms of specific personality traits, this idea of something called extroverted narcissism, which is really kind of a type of self-promotional narcissism that's exclusively grandiose. Um, when people talk about someone being narcissistic, that's usually the type of narcissism they're talking about, the kind of person who's always kind of bragging about themselves, engaging in a lot of self-promotion. They feel a little too slick, um, you know, in terms of their interactions with others. So that's one type of narcissism. There's also something called um, neurotic narcissism, which is kind of an exclusively vulnerable type of narcissism. And this is the type of narcissistic individual that they have narcissistic beliefs about themselves, but they present as being kind of introverted, a little socially anxious, and they're really hyper-responsive to criticism and failure. And then what I find most interesting is the third type, which is antagonistic narcissism, which is a blend of the grandiose and vulnerable types. And these are the people who are really kind of self-protective. Uh, they see everything as being a competition. And they're very eager to get ahead of other people because they, they view everything through this very competitive lens. How do you measure people on that? So a lot of it is using self-report instruments. Um, so the most typical types of measures are essentially giving people questionnaires and asking them to rate how, how much they uh, agree or disagree with various statements that may or may not describe them. And the measures of narcissism actually perform pretty well, um, which is a little surprising when when you look at the items and some of them are, are things that you would think people would just not want to agree with because it's things like, oh, I just feel I'm, I'm better than other people are or, you know, I, 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 uh, I get really upset if I'm criticized. You know, things that most of us who aren't terribly narcissistic would probably say, oh, even if that was true, I don't know if I would say I strongly agree with that. But a lot of people, there's a lot of variability in, in the sorts of responses that people give, and the self-report measures tend to tend to be related with uh, other self-report measures of similar constructs or actual behavioral outcomes that align nicely with the idea of the constructs. Yeah, is there any indication? So I have I have two questions. You can pick which one you want to answer first. Is there any indication that this has changed over time. I don't know that the research has been around for long enough to know over the decades if more people would be rating more highly in these areas. So that's question number one. And then number two is, do personality, are there any specific individual differences, age, gender, personality traits or uh, personality types that would lend someone to fall more into one of those categories than another? Sure. Um, so maybe I'll start with the, the first part, which is, have these things changed much over time? There, there has been a, a really interesting and fascinating debate about exactly that question. Um, and and I, I, think, I think really, if you boil it down, the answer is people still aren't perfectly clear on whether these things really have been changing a lot over re recent generations or not. Um, part, part of the reason for the uh, uncertainty is that the, the data, so, so different different data sets suggest slightly different um, kind of perceptions of what's going on. 
in general, one argument is that there has been an increase in narcissism in recent generations, and there there have been books written on this topic. Basically, the argument kind of boils down to the way that society is now structured, the way people parent their children in more recent generations has kind of given rise to it, an increase in narcissism. Um, I, I think there's some support for that. What, but where things get to be really messy is the data. Um, some of the some of these longitudinal studies have been used to support this. There, there have been some some unusual changes in the demographic structures of of the. So, for example, there's one data set where people where basically college students have been given measures of narcissism again and again from year to year to year over the past uh, 25 years or something. And at first blush, it looks like, well, there really aren't many changes in narcissism level, for example. But then when you start looking at the demographics or some of the universities where some of these studies have been done, there have been fairly considerable changes in the demographic makeup of the student body with more and more Asian students in recent years that may be kind of masking some of these different. So so the, 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 the short answer is it's really complicated and people have very different opinions about whether narcissism is increasing or not. I, I think there is a there is maybe a tendency for for older individuals. And I hate the fact that I'm falling more and more in the scale with every passing year. To look at younger people and say, ah, there's something wrong with kids these days. And so I do think there is a legitimate concern that is this just older people constantly complaining about younger generations? I think there could be a piece to that. Um, I I do also think that there are some risks with things like social media and parenting strategies that could be increasing narcissism levels as well. I, I don't think it's I don't know if it's the sort of epidemic that some people have claimed or not. I do think there probably are some increases, though. Hmm. Okay. Uh, so can you give an example? Because I know some listeners are going to say, well, what parenting strategies? What are the things parents could be doing? Do you have any idea of what those are? Sure. Um. So the data here also is going to be a little bit mixed. But one one set of studies argues that a lot of what seems to be contributing to the rise in narcissism is parental overvaluation. So when parents uh, believe that their children really are the best thing that has ever existed, um, and you know, and it's not uncommon today to see parents talking about how their child is brilliant and exceptional in every possible way, and sometimes parents may be overlooking the fact that not every child can be perfect and wonderful and better than every other child. Most of our kids realistically are average, um, and no parent wants to believe their kid is average. Um, and so I think part of what happens is that for a wide array of reasons, parents may tend to engage in a, a little overvaluation of their children, which, depending on how that's internalized by the child, could end up creating a sense of, of grandiosity. Um, for example, if, if you're a young child and if your parents are telling you, how much of a genius you are, how skilled you are, how wonderful you are. Depending on what what's happening with the kid, they could start to really believe those sorts of things. And later on, when they, for example, begin engaging in social comparison processes with other kids, and they realize that despite mom and dad telling me that I was the smartest kid that's ever been on the face of the planet, 
my other classmates seem, I seem to be kind of smack in the middle of my classmates. You know, how do I make sense of this discrepancy? And those things can lead to some defensiveness. It could really be shattering for kids in some cases when they're raised under this um, perhaps illusion of being much better than they really are. On on the other hand, parents who engage in really kind of portraying a lot of warmth and acceptance of their children tend to promote healthy self-esteem. Um, and, and so so when when people are when parents are thinking about what what do they want for their kids? Most of us want our kids to have, you know, positive views of themselves. We want them to be confident. But what we have to be careful about is making sure that we're really instilling confidence and high self-esteem in our children rather than unintentionally creating a, a sense of narcissism. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, so do you know anything about personality differences? If there are people who, based on either the big five personalities or disc profile, which probably isn't researched quite as much, but yeah, have you seen a pattern in the type of people who tend to represent with more narcissism? So there, there are going to be two kind of primary uh, personality traits that uh, are, are going to be connected to different aspects of narcissism. Um, one of them is going to be agreeable. So from the big five, you've got extroversion, agreeableness, uh, conscientiousness, eroticism, and openness to experience. And um, so agreeableness is going to be a really important um, aspect of narcissism. And in particular, it's low agreeableness. Um, so people who are low in agreeableness can they don't always have to, but there is a tendency for them to uh, to uh, display higher levels of narcissism, in particular the antagonistic type of narcissism, um, which is the type that I, I personally find most interesting. It's probably the most uh, most abrasive type of narcissism, but it's the kind that I find most interesting because these are the people who are really. Um, unpleasant to interact with um and they're they tend to be low and agreeable so it's kind of their overarching characteristic um extroversion is really associated uh and it linked very closely with extroverted narcissism as, as the name would imply um these are people who are really outgoing they're very sociable um and they get along really well with people in in kind of short periods um so in initial interactions people with extroverted narcissism are well-liked by others, are perceived to be charismatic. Uh, they're very uh, romantically alluring to others. They're great short-term uh, romantic partners. It's just that everything kind of falls apart in the long run with these folks. So in enduring relationships, people kind of see through the the kind of superficial charm of these folks once they get to know them very well. Um, and then there's also the neurotic type of narcissism that's closely associated with, with neuroticism. Uh, so a, a lot of emotional volatility and those sorts of things as well. Hmm. Is there any intervention to help people who do score higher in any of those areas of narcissism to help it come back down? So similar to, which we'll get to in a minute, if someone has too low a self-esteem, what are some interventions to help them have more healthy self-esteem? If someone has um, too high, if someone is narcissistic, what what is the what's the solution? So I, I wouldn't say there are great solutions, um, but what what people so there there have been a number of different treatments uh, modalities uh, that have been hypothesized and and thought about for for various aspects of narcissism. 
So things like antidepressant medications have been used. Um, there have been some recent uh, attempts to use uh, psychedelic meds with narcissism, um, EMDR treatment, eye movement desensitization and reprocessing. All those things have been used. I, I, w- I would say at, at best with limited success, um, and that's probably being generous. Um, I still think probably the, the best approach to treating narcissism is probably with old-fashioned cognitive behavioral therapy is probably the best approach. Um, and usually when when therapists are working with an individual who's narcissistic, one of the complications is that narcissists typically don't seek out therapy themselves um, because from a narcissistic point of view, they aren't the problem. It's everybody else around them that's the problem. And so they usually don't seek treatment. Usually they only go into treatment if, if they're forced to in some way. So uh, a spouse tells them, look, you have to go get help or else I'm, I'm leaving, or an employer, or they're forced by the court system. So they, they tend to be more reluctant. But when they do go in for treatment, cognitive behavioral therapy can be helpful, um, but it's it's difficult because with any sort of personality disorder, and here, you know, even if we're not getting into NPD per se, it's still trying to, trying to alter a, a fundamental part of who someone is. And Personality shapes everything about how we perceive the world, how we perceive ourselves. And it, it's it's really difficult to get people to alter those kind of fundamental aspects of who they are. So it's it really takes someone who really wants to change, um, to really embrace cognitive behavioral therapy, to try to alter how they're viewing themselves and their interactions with other people. So there are quick and easy solutions. I, I wish there I wish there were like some of the drugs, like the antidepressant meds that have been used, I would love if those things were really, really effective for in, for for narcissism because th- these folks need help. Their their interpersonal relationships tend not to do terribly well over time. They, you know, a lot they have a lot of concerns and issues, and it would be nice to to find a, a better way of helping. Yeah. Now we said earlier that narcissism in the general population. It, the average person probably has an average, I don't remember exactly how you said it, but all of us to some extent have some some level of narcissism. So these people specifically that you're talking about, when they would take these self-report questionnaires, they're the ones who are just rating in the super high category of what? What are the questions that are being asked that people are identifying in these areas that is that is helping the researchers understand that these people have higher higher than average and hurtful amounts in relationships of these qualities. Mm-hmm. So um so to to start with maybe we'll start with extroverted narcissism because that's that that's the most kind of prototypical type. So extroverted narcissism isn't all bad. Um you know th- there's some really nice things with with extroverted narcissism. So, uh, you know, and, and what, one of the, one of the things that, that I would argue is with any of the types of narcissism, a moderate amount probably isn't a bad thing. Um, I, you know, I, I tend to come from the camp that believes that for personality traits in general, moderate levels aren't bad. Um, it's usually when you get to the extremes in one end or the other of the continuum that things start to become more problematic. And I think that also holds with, with narcissism as well. Um, so even though I'll talk a lot about the problems with narcissism, 
having really, really low levels of narcissism can also be problematic. Um, so, so for example, with extroverted narcissism, the, the sorts of questions that would that would capture extroverted narcissism would be things like, um, I like to be the center of attention. Um, I want to have positions of leadership and authority and those sorts of things, which are not bad at all. I, I'm, I'm thrilled that some people want to be the center of attention. We, we need people who want to be uh, like actors and celebrities. They want, they want attention focused on themselves. We need people who are aspiring to be leaders, who are applying for you know, leadership positions in companies. They're uh, you know, politicians, for example. So we, we need those folks. Um, it, and to, to have a, a moderate amount of those sorts of qualities can be really good. We, we all need to be able to promote ourselves. Um, for example, if you're applying for a job, when you go in for a job interview, you have to be willing to toot your own horn at least a little bit. Um, the, the problem is that when things are too exaggerated, these folks, if that's all they can focus on is if they're so desperate for external affirmation and validation, and if they're constantly kind of chasing status, which is something that my colleagues and I have been arguing is really at the heart of narcissism. It's really about status related issues that that's where it becomes really problematic um, for people with antagonistic narcissism. It's really a very they have a very combative view of the world. So uh, people with high levels of antagonistic narcissism would be endorsing items like um when when I'm criticized by others, I, I get so angry that I can barely control myself, um, which all of us get criticized by other people. Um, as you mentioned, I, I, I do a lot of research and I could not tell you how many uh, empirical articles I've submitted for publication that have been rejected. Um, I can't tell you how many horrible, scathing comments I've gotten on the stuff that I've spent months or years working on. And it's it's painful and it hurts. Um and for most of us, what we do is we kind of we we you know we 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 maybe we maybe uh, you know feel sad and dejected for a few minutes, but then we eventually pick ourselves up, dust ourselves off, and try to learn from that sort of feedback. People with antagonistic narcissism are much more likely to be so defensive that they're not willing to kind of learn from feedback from others. Instead, they lash out at others. Um, you know, these are the people that you know would immediately kind of fire off a retort to. Someone who criticizes them saying that you're too stupid to understand my brilliance or, you know, those sorts of things instead of accepting that, yeah, maybe this isn't as good as I actually thought it was. Um, and so so there's a lot of defensiveness that, and a lot of self-protection that goes into narcissism and a fragility as well that I'm sure we'll talk about when we get to some of the connections with self-esteem. Great. Yeah, super helpful. Well, I mean, let's dive into that aspect now. So how does narcissism relate to self-esteem? And then let's talk a little bit about self-esteem. Sure. Um, so so self-esteem has to do with our, our evaluations of ourselves, basically how much we like ourselves, how much we, we feel that we're, we have social value and worth. And the, the basic idea of connecting narcissism and self-esteem. So historically, the argument has been that the function of narcissism has been to essentially kind of regulate self-esteem. So if you look back at some older articles about narcissism, it almost always dealt with the idea that narcissism is about self-esteem regulation, which makes sense because there are connections between narcissism and self-esteem. Um, some people have gone so far as to essentially kind of define 
narcissism as being kind of inflated uh, self-esteem. And so conceptually, there are important connections between. Now, where, where things get a little more complicated is when you start looking at things in, from an empirical point of view, the, the connection between narcissism and self-esteem is weak and inconsistent. So, for example, if you look at kind of general measures of narcissism, so ignoring the different subtypes that we were talking about a moment ago, the general kind of narcissism and its connection with self-esteem tends to correlate around point three. So there's a, a weak to modest positive correlation between narcissism and self-esteem that suggests that they, they aren't interchangeable. Like you can't, so in the past, people would sometimes talk about, well, narcissistic people are just people with really, really high self-esteem. And th- those, they're, they're, they're not, they, they, are, they are things you can just kind of swap for one another. And part of the reason for that is that people who are narcissistic um, are unlikely to necessarily endorse really low levels of self-esteem. But people with high self-esteem may or may not be narcissistic. So there isn't anything that requires someone with high self-esteem to be narcissistic. Um, it, in fact, it looks like people with high levels of self-esteem, what they're really focused on is they want to be, they, they view themselves as being as good as other people. So not better, not worse, just as good as other people. Narcissistic folks view themselves as being better than other people. And, and that that's really one of the, the hallmarks of narcissism is this desire to be better than other people. When we dive down into the specific aspects of narcissism, extroverted, antagonistic, and neurotic. Um, extroverted narcissism is positively associated with self-esteem. So people um, who have extroverted narcissism tend to view themselves fairly positively. They, 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 have pos- they have high self-esteem, at least reasonably high self-esteem. The people with antagonistic narcissism and neurotic narcissism actually have relatively low self-esteem. So, for example, people with antagonistic narcissism they think that they deserve to be, you know, kind of acclaimed by other people. They they think they deserve status and and uh, to be viewed as valuable and, and worthy by other people, but they don't feel like they're getting that from others. And so as a consequence, they end up feeling a little bit worse about themselves. They don't feel it's justified. They feel like they're being treated poorly, but they feel like other people don't grant them the status that they that they deserve, for example. What do you, something of an example in my mind, and I don't really know, we're going to figure out what the question is as I talk through this. So, you know, what about a situation where I'm, I'm having a difficult interaction with a colleague at work, for example, and because of the way they're, they're acting, I say they're a narcissist because they're, you know, they're wanting their way. They're difficult to deal with. They seem to not care about anyone else's feelings. They feel like they're better than everyone else. They must be a narcissist. Is how, to, what's my question? How is this, like the the concept we're talking about of if people do have these higher levels of narcissism, is it helpful for me to label other people or try and judge other people with that or or try or just guess like is it something that a an outside person could look at them and say they're a narcissist or is it really 
much deeper, like the assessment that needs to be taken of the self-reported measures or things like that. And if I do feel like someone I'm in relationship with in whatever level is a narcissist, then what is the answer? How I mean, I know we kind of talked about that earlier and you said there's not great answers with interventions, but surely the answer can't be to write that person off and and shun them. I'm guessing like how do you deal with people in in relationship who are struggling with this? So uh, so to, to answer part of it, I, I think outside individuals can recognize narcissism levels in others. Um, now, sometimes it, it may take us a little bit of time to, uh, you know, we, we have to get to know someone to really understand it in some cases. Now, in fairness, there are some people that come across that are so blatant in their narcissism that it doesn't take a lot of it doesn't take a lot of time to kind of figure out what's going on with 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 folks. Um, but there are some people and I think probably especially so I, I think the people who are easiest to identify are probably the people who ha- are high in antagonistic narcissism, that sort of combative edge. I, I don't think it takes us terribly long to to identify those folks. The other types of narcissism, it may take a little bit longer. Like, for example, like the extroverted narcissism, because of the superficial kind of charm and stuff in the beginning, we may think that, oh, this person's just really nice and charming. They're, they're great. And it may take us a little while to figure out that, wait a minute, nothing that goes wrong is ever this person's fault. It's always somebody else's responsibility. You know, maybe they don't have a lot of empathy for other people. It may take us a little bit longer to kind of figure those things out. But we can do it from an outsider's point of view. I don't think that um, I, I don't think that we always necessarily need um, like standardized assessment instrument. I don't think those are. I think they're wonderful. I use those all the time with my research participants, but I, I don't think they are the only way to kind of identify where narcissism might be. Um, now, I think your other question is really interesting. Okay, let's say you're in an interaction with someone who you think is narcissistic. So let's say a coworker, um, like, like you were saying, is it helpful to say, Bob, I think you're a narcissist and here's what I think we should do. I, I'm guessing that's not going to be the best strategy. Um, you know, it, it's it's kind of like when when people have other sorts of personality, forms of personality pathology, does labeling it necessarily help? Um, like, for example, in I used to be a therapist a long time ago. And one of the things that at least at that time is that people with borderline personality disorder, which is another form of personality pathology, were probably the most difficult patients to work. with. Um, and one of the things that people would struggle with is. Well, do you tell them that they have borderline personality disorder or not? Because is that going to be helpful? Um, in there, there are trade-offs. You know, I think one of the trade-offs is that on a positive side, it can be helpful for individuals to know what it is that's going on with them, that they aren't alone, that they aren't unique and special, that other people have similar sorts of issues. So I think there can be some pros. However, I think I think the label itself can cause a lot of and I think the same thing happens with narcissism. I, I think if, if you have a coworker that you're having some conflict with, and if if the it, I, I would not recommend that the first approach be to tell them that they're narcissistic and that's why you're having the conflict, because I'm pretty sure that will just cause some more defensiveness and probably it probably won't have the sort of breakthrough moment that a person might want. I think usually when people do that, what they're hoping is that. If I tell the person they're narcissistic, 
they're going to have this aha insight moment and they're going to realize that that this is their fault um and that i i do i don't think that's probably going to happen in most cases um now in some cases it might if, if the person really is you know if the person is asking for feedback and they're they're saying you know every relationship i have seems to be filled with conflict and i i don't know what's going on you know what do you think? Um, I think there the invitation might be to help them understand that from your perspective, they seem a little narcissistic and maybe that maybe that's part of the problem. But I think that's that's a very different sort of approach than having a conflict with someone and tossing out the label of narcissists in order to one try to, to win the conflict or 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 something of that sort, which I don't think is probably going to be terribly beneficial. Um in order to really kind of manage that conflict if it is someone that you have to interact with repeatedly like like a close co-worker or a romantic partner or family member um i think one of the things is to try to understand the world from from their perspective and try to see why they're responding in the ways that they're responding um i think it, i think to I, I completely agree with you that we can't simply shun people just because we we don't enjoy interacting with them um you know, we 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 all have coworkers that we probably don't love interacting with that much, and life is tough. And what we have we have to be able to interact with each other to at least some extent. Same thing with family, um, people on social media, romantic partners and friends. At, at some points, you know, I, I don't think we could just shun and just cut everyone off from our lives who who aren't always pleasant to deal with. Um, so narcissistic individuals tend to see the world as being very competitive. And so, you know, part of what I would be thinking about in a coworker setting is, is there something going on that's causing this person to respond poorly because they're viewing things from a, a competitive point of view? Are they viewing me as a competitor? Um, and do they view the world as a zero sum game where in order for them to win, somebody else has to lose, right? And if you're a coworker of that person, then they may be viewing the world as in order for them to advance, you have to fail. Um, and trying to figure out are there ways to navigate that to make things not seem like a zero-sum game, to make it seem like you're not trying to out-compete them, um, if that isn't the case, or at least being open and honest about it if it is the case. You know, if you're both applying for the same promotion, maybe there isn't a way to avoid that sort of conflict. Um, because there there are situations where the world is a zero-sum game. Some people you know, I think I think people kind of veer to one side or the other, and some people always view everything as zero sum conflicts when not everything is a zero sum conflict. Then anyway, I think there's some really Pollyanna-ish people who want to view that no, no, nothing's ever zero sum, and yeah, there some things are zero sum. If there's one promotion and multiple people applying for it, somebody's going to win and some people are going to lose. You know, not everybody can can always get the promotion. Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. So in in regards to self-esteem, I want to make sure I heard this correctly. The link between self-esteem and narcissism is that narcissistic individuals tend to have lower self-esteem, not higher self-esteem. Well, it, it's it's mixed. It's mixed. Um, and the reason is that so extroverted narcissists actually have higher self-esteem. The other types of narcissism actually have lower self-esteem. And, and so part of the reason why things are so murky when it comes to the connection between narcissism and self-esteem is because it really depends on the type of narcissism it is that you're looking at. Um, 
extroverted narcissists who engage in a lot of self-promotion, when you ask them about their self-esteem, they say they feel quite good about themselves. Um, and their self-esteem also tends to be reasonably stable um, o- over time. So if you ask them about how they feel about themselves today, if you ask them how they feel about themselves tomorrow, the day after that, and so on, people who have high extroverted narcissism, their self-esteem doesn't fluctuate a lot. Now, if they get some sort of self-esteem threat, um, so for example, if they if they fail at something that's important to them, um, if they uh, you, you know if they, if they get some sort of rejection feedback, their self esteem may be a little more responsive and reactive than other folks. But for the most part, when things are going nice and stably, uh, their self esteem also is fairly stable. People with uh, antagonistic narcissism, their self esteem is just a, a bit lower than other people, usually because they're perceiving a lot whether it's justified or not, they're perceiving a lot of disrespect from the social environment. They don't believe that they are getting the respect that they deserve at work, from their friends, from their family. They feel like they deserve to be um, acclaimed a lot more than than they're getting. Now, is that true or not is a, is a whole other thing. And when I say it's true, I mean, one, do they deserve it? And is that really how the people around them view them? And the, the answer is we, we don't really know that. We know they tend to perceive they, they tend to perceive a, a lot less respect uh, from others around them, but it's not as clear whether or not others actually are disrespecting them. Yeah, yeah. When it comes to self esteem, what would you say are the the facets of self esteem? So, what are the things that lead someone to feel like they are as of equal value? Or as worthy as other people, so that there there are a few few different kind of ways to answer that. Um, so I'll, I'll start with what I think are probably two of the the best insights in, into self esteem in the last thir- thirty years or so. So w- when when I was when I was first becoming interested in self esteem, at the time we we knew that self esteem was correlated with a bunch of stuff, and it was usually good stuff. Now there were some negative things like aggression and so on, but for the most part, self seemed seem to be a very positive characteristic. What what initially I found a little discouraging is that at that time, back in the the nineties, there hadn't been a lot of really careful thought about what the self esteem actually for. Like, why did we have self esteem? And a guy named Mark Leary and some of his colleagues was, was really the first person to, in in my opinion, think deeply about this topic. And what, what he argued was for something he referred to as the sociometer model uh, of self-esteem. And the basic idea behind the sociometer model is that he thought that people don't actually care about self-esteem itself. What really they care about is what self-esteem is measuring and what self-esteem is tracking. And what Leary argued, that there were a few different versions of his argument over the years, but what it boiled down to is it had to do with self-esteem is really tracking the extent to which people feel like they're they're liked and accepted by people in their social environment. And um, from his perspective, basically self-esteem is kind of like a gas gauge on the dashboard of your, your car. Um, so if if the gas gauge is getting close to empty, what what you and I would do is we would pull over at a gas station and fill up the gas tank. And Leary argues that self-esteem is essentially that gas gauge. What it's measuring is the amount of fuel in the tank. And what he cared about was, he thought it was about liking and acceptance. 
where he thought that people sometimes go wrong is kind of like if the gas gauge on the dash of our car got close to E, what we could do, which would be really stupid, is we could break out the plastic on our dashboard and take our finger and shove the needle up to full. And Leary thought that that's kind of what happens with people with self-esteem, is that if they don't understand where self-esteem comes from, they engage in all of these kind of uh, manipulative ways in which they try to artificially inflate their self-esteem, which is kind of like pushing the needle up when there really is an extra fuel in the tank. So instead of actually trying to repair our social relationships, actually be liked and accepted by other people, sometimes we do things to try to trick ourselves into thinking that uh, that our self-esteem is higher than it really is. And so I think Leary had some nice insights, um, and that was kind of where things stood for uh, pro- all, all, I mean, close to 25 years or so. And then it, fairly recently, um, a, a group of researchers in the UK um, decided to expand on the sociometer model with what they referred to as a hierometer model. Same sort of idea what, as what Leary had, but what they argued is that self-esteem also, at the same time it's tracking feelings of liking and acceptance, it's also tracking issues connected to our status and dominance as well. And I thought that was a, a wonderful, brilliant insight. And so what, what data has started to show for, from my lab as well as others is that it can track the extent to which people feel liked and accepted and included by others in their daily experiences. At the same time, if you ask them about the extent to which they feel admired and respected by others, their self-esteem fluctuates in accordance with both of those things. So it seems like both the sociometer model and the hierometer model both are working. So as far as how you can help people improve their self-esteem, what I would argue is that we don't actually want them to focus on their self-esteem per se. What we want them to focus on will be what's feeding into their self-esteem. So having good social relationships with other people where they feel liked and accepted, um, having encounters with others where they feel valuable, where they feel like they actually have words, where they feel like they're being respected by the people around them. I would argue that's really how we should be trying to improve people's self-esteem is by targeting our social relationships and helping them, uh, one, pursue social relationships that are more valid, more, uh, more affirming and more uh, that they find more rewarding instead of and, and helping them interpret things differently as well. Um, but I, I, I get nervous when people start focusing on on self-esteem itself as being the be all end all, because I I think self-esteem is a lovely thing. I want people to feel good about themselves, but I want them to feel good for the right reasons, because their lives really are fulfilling. They're having interactions with others that are valuable they, and they feel good about those interactions. Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. Do you believe that there are any areas of self-esteem? So you've talked a lot about the relational, emotional kind of aspects of it. Are there any parts of it that are more on the individual level? Mm-hmm. Oh, I, I, I think I think all of the relational stuff, I, I think definitely plays, I, I think that I think the individual level also is important because it, it really boils down to how people view themselves. So even though like with the sociometer model, it's about feelings of are you liked and accepted by others? But it's not really about are others actually liking and accepting you. It's just do you feel liked and accepted by others? And so you can have um, you can have miscalibration. At, at, at the individual level. So there are people who are 
who are perfectly well liked and accepted by other people, but in their head, right? It's constantly, I'm not good enough. Other people don't like me. And whereas other people actually like them just fine, right? But they convince themselves that they aren't attractive, that they aren't, that they aren't good enough. And so a lot of this is going on. What, what, what's going on inside of us matters a lot for, for self-esteem because you can be getting all the affirmation in the world from the people around you. But if you discount it, um, you, your self-esteem is, is likely going to be quite low. Um, and same thing for, or for the higherometer side. You can be getting a lot of respect. People can be coming to you for your expertise in areas, but if you don't recognize that and if you don't accept it, your self-esteem likely isn't going to be terribly high. Yeah, that makes that makes a ton of sense. Well, Dr. Ziegler-Hill, the last question I'll ask you is, of all of the research that you've done, which I understand is a lot, so this question may be crazy, but what has been the most fascinating thing that you have learned and want to share with us? So, so I, th- there may be a little bit of recency bias, and when what I'm going, what I'm going to say, but, but um, I, I think for for me, probably the 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 most interesting thing in 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 recent years for me has been the connection between narcissism and, and status. Um, and so, the part of the reason why why I find that to be so interesting has been one because it's been absorbing the last five, six, seven years of my life. That, that's one of the reasons. But um, what, what, where it, the reason why I think it's helpful is that before, before we really started focusing on the idea of status and social value as being at the heart of narcissism, when we thought of it as being about self-esteem regulation, I think there was a lot of misunderstanding of what narcissism is, is about. Um, and what I think narcissism really is about is about the navigation of status hierarchies. I think Narcissism has evolved over the course of human history to help us navigate status hierarchies in our in our social uh, in our social lives, um, and so I think the reason and this is something so so self esteem is something that it feels good, but there isn't really you know other than tracking how we're doing in our social relationships, there isn't a reason for it necessarily. Whereas navigating status hierarchies is something that status hierarchies are pervasive in, in all human social groups. There's always some sort of kind of pecking order, and it's very beneficial in the vast majority of cases to be near the top of that pecking order. Now, there are costs. Um, if you're near the top of the pecking order, it's very likely that somebody's trying to knock you off of there. So, so there, are, there are certainly costs. I don't want to say there are costs. But I think what narcissism does is it's a way of, of helping us navigate those sorts of social hierarchies. And I think where self-esteem comes in is it's helping us track how successful or unsuccessful we think we've been in navigating social hierarchies. So I think that that's that's where I, I think the work has been in the, in the last five, six, seven years or so. Yeah, that's fantastic. And I appreciate the contribution that you have been doing to the psychological literature and to this type of research, as well as others that we didn't have the time to get into today. Is is there a way for people who don't have access to, you know, online libraries of scholarly journals to to read anything about the research that you've done? Um, so there there are some open access things. So if people go into, if people use like Google or Google Scholar and type in search terms like narcissism and self-esteem, there are ways to find uh, articles, some of which are open access and anyone can read them. 
some things like like you mentioned are are closed. Uh, they're not closed access, but they're behind paywalls essentially. Um, if 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 anyone, if any of your listeners, uh, if they're interested in anything that I've done, if they send me an email, if they go to my website um, and send me an email from there, I'd, I'd be happy to send them copies of of any of the articles that I've written. That's fantastic. I appreciate that. We'll include your website in the show notes as well, so people can can get access to it. But I know that my listeners are going to love this episode and probably have follow-up questions. So in sometime in the future, I may have a, an Ask You Anything episode if you <laughs> to come back and say, we have all these questions about it. But oh, thank you so much for your time. I have appreciated and enjoyed our conversation so much. Well, it was great chatting with you. Thank you for having me. In today's episode, we covered so many things and opened up a can of worms. There's probably so many of you thinking, I can't believe you even talked about narcissism as much as you talk about how you don't agree with it. You don't, you know, all of these things that people are quick to label and quick to judge other people as a narcissist. And I still believe that. I think that the word narcissism is used way too much because I think just as Dr. Ziegler Hill said that people will use it as a way to shun a person or label a person or as a way to get out of a relationship with the person. And that can't be the answer. I say can't understanding we all have choices about which relationship that we're in but if we just label everyone that that is difficult to work with or to be in relationship with we would ultimately end up having no friends because relationships are hard work to do i do think that the literature that has been done in narcissism is really fascinating and that I'm going to be doing a little bit of a deeper dive into it because it it is something that we deal with 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 people who are struggling in these areas, whether it's because of their upbringing or because they're suffering with low self-esteem. Many of the things we talked about at the end of the day, I loved his key takeaway when he said, the real key is to try and understand the other person's perspective. Because if they're struggling with high levels of narcissism, he didn't say this word, I'm going to say it. It's a fear that the person has, a fear of losing or not having a social status, of not being seen in a, as, as worthy. And there can be empathy for that. We can empathize. I can, at least. It helps me to empathize and want to see something from the other person's point of view. So that's a key takeaway. We can't fix it. But being in a loving relationship, trying to empathize with that person, even when they're being difficult, understanding that in relationships that can be hard. And maybe in future episodes, we'll go deeper into what into what that looks like. But today was more about the research of it. Another key takeaway I hope you took was listening to how he could talk about different aspects of it and and understand he was, you know, he was talking about narcissism and all of these negative effects that can come from it. But then on the flip side, he said, there's a positive side to narcissism. So I hope that you just even heard how he thinks about things as someone who's been in research, a person who's able to see all sides of it and consider multiple different aspects of why things may be the way that they are and not holding too tightly to any one thing but being really open to understanding all different aspects. That is such a healthy place to be, I believe. And it's something that we, as we go through a PhD program, dissertation program, especially in research, it's something that we're really sharpened to do is to consider all the different aspects and present the evidence for those aspects. So that's something I hope you learned from today. 
If you enjoyed today's episode, share it with a friend, and I bet many of you are going to want to because of the topic of it, which was really all about narcissism. And we'd also love if you left a five-star review or whatever review you want to leave. I encourage you to be honest with it wherever you listen to podcasts. It helps this show to grow and expand to even more people. Until next week, stay strong.